Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. This week is Boris Schlossberg. Do I pronounce it as Schlossberg? Uh, that's close enough. Uh, you, you, only New Yorkers can pronounce it properly, but you, you got it close <laughs> enough. Uh, Managing Director of FX Strategy for BK Asset Management and co-founder of BK Forex, author of Millionaire Traders and Beginner's Technical Analysis of the Currency Market. Boris, how's the weather in New York? Uh, it was great yesterday. It's a little cold today, but you know, given the fact that it's winter, it's all good. Climate, uh, yeah. you know, climate change has been good to New York. We haven't had any snow the whole winter long. I, I despise cold weather, so I'm very happy. Really, you despise cold weather, but you live in New York. That's yeah, uh, exactly that. that that's <laughs> quite an irony. If, if, I, if I could flip the people. With my and the climate with Miami to New York, I'd do in a heartbeat. Unfortunately, there are trade offs, right? So I have to sacrifice the weather for the people on the location. But uh-huh. are, you gonna, are you gonna do that old Seinfeld classic and uh, you know, where you hit perfect retirement age, just go down to Florida? Yeah, uh, oh, apparently over my wife's dead body, so I guess not. I, I, I can go to Florida, I love Florida. I go to Florida for three days after three days. I am ready to come back. It's just, yeah. it's like having your brain fried permanently, so I can't do it. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's, I, I feel like we're already about to change seasons here in Melbourne, Victoria. We've just uh, seen our, our first week of uh, very cold, wet, and windy weather. It's gone from very humid sort of really? um, summer rains to freezing cold. I'm actually in uh, – like a full-on winter gear this morning. Really? It's eight, it's eight a.m. here. It's funny because I've, I've been to Melbourne and Sydney always in the winter, like in June. Never had a bad day. It's always been like like fifty-five, sixty uh, Fahrenheit, and I'm like, yeah, if this, if this is winter. You know, I'll take it any time. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't complain because I mean, us Australians we whinge about winters, but. I don't think we really have, we have no idea winters what like winter is like 20, yeah. 20 minus centigrade for for one week straight and you'll just you know you'll be scared straight into into a real winter. and that doesn't even that isn't like you know for Canadians that's an average day so it's all relevant. Yeah. Now speaking of uh cold winters you're a product of the USSR. Where did uh where's your family from? Moscow. I was I was born in Moscow, born and raised in Moscow. Okay, and how old were you when you came over to? Um, America? I came to America when I was eleven. So really, you know, I am very American, both in my attitude and and kind of my cultural orientation. There is, you know, you, you can never take quite take the Russian out of the boy, but I really most of it <laughs> stumped out. Do you have any like particular memories of your childhood? Like, if you if what's sort of the first memory that comes to mind? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I. Um, I mean, Moscow is exact at that time was exactly how you would imagine it to be. It was gray and dull and, you know, very sort of bleak. And um, that's kind of always my permanent uh, memory of Russia. Mm. Yeah, I mean, every, every stereotype you can imagine, I pretty much did it. I mean, we lived in a block of apartment buildings that were prefab, this, this kind of Stalinist architecture where they would just prefab. And this was considered to be high value in, in Moscow. Um, and there was a huge, huge little courtyard, which was frozen over 
like six months out of the year with ice. And we, as little kids, we would just do nothing but spend our time, you know, playing hockey. And, you know, I used to play goalie. And I, I, to the age of 16, I had scars on my on my shins from playing goalie, but I loved it, you know. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's like every, every stereotype you can possibly imagine, I lived it, yes, you know. Well, why was your family? Uh, did they have like a Jewish background? What was sort of the reason f- for moving for moving out of out of Moscow? So yes, of course, we were Jews. In addition to which, you know, my my grandfather was a very very senior member in the Russian Army Corps of Engineers. He was essentially responsible for all the Russian nuclear installations. So. Wow was impossible for us to leave Russia. They uh, Basically what happened is, unfortunately, my grandfather had his third heart attack. He finally passed away. And that was the uh, uh, only after that did they allow us to um, uh, to leave the country. Uh, and even then, it was just, you know, it was just an, an endless campaign of harassment. My mom was was constantly uh, harassed by the KGB. I mean, it was it was literally like, you know, you know the um, show The Russians uh, in mm. – uh, about like 1980 spies. I mean, I came to America in the, in the middle of seventies, everybody to that day. And we lived in Washington, DC, literally McLean high school. I went to McLean high school, McLean, Virginia, the heartland of CIA. And everybody was convinced that I was a Russian spy when I was, when I was there. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it, it was a, it was a real cultural change to come from there to here, but it was very much exactly like all of the old cold war movies you can imagine. Um, you know, the way we lived it. You'll find this very funny. Uh, do you remember the song uh, Rasputin by Boney M? I don't know. Why? Oh, wow. It's a classic funk song. I don't know why, but for, for some reason, uh, that song... So my, my partner is half Polish and half German. So her parents sort of got together in uh, just after the war, uh, which is very interesting and had her quite late. And basically, I don't know why, but this song has come up after watching a trailer for the new Stranger Things, and uh, it just it reminded me of that for some stupid reason. Really? But um, it's very stuck in my head. It's it's sort of like a song by Afro Germans about the Russians, and it's right. just uh, it's it's so right. it's bizarre. Like for a funk song to be made, like most of that you you think of, um, you know, that song September, right. So it's just it's it's weird, but I don't know why that came to mind. I just thought yeah. that was quite funny. Um, well, the Russian part, of, the Russian part of me is pretty much remnants at this point. I, I would say I am a cultural New Yorker for a very long time, so that, <laughs> that pretty much defines me at this point. Now, are there particular lessons or principles that you hold with you today from either of your parents? Survive. <laughs> That's my principle. <laughs> the great thing about being being an immigrant is that uh, you learn to survive under any condition in any environment. And, uh, I, you know, I think maybe ultimately that's been the, the only skill that has served me well in terms of adapt- mm. adapting to every environment I possibly could. I think the, the greatest gift of living through quite a lot of hardship is that you don't take anything for granted and you also don't expect anything. I always have, a, I, I think, a very healthy attitude of no matter how bad things get, it doesn't matter because I expect nothing great to happen anyways. So and my wife always accused me of being just a perpetually Saturnine Russian, you know, who uh, <laughs> the worst part of life. But at the same time, I'm never a negative person. It's just that I never expect positivity in life. And I think it's a very Russian quality at this point. Yeah, I think that is 100% like uh, an immigrant mentality. I think um, coming from a Greek uh, immigrant background, there's there's something to be said about that, which then in later generations helps you in life. I think. Um, yes, I think it's. Know, a- you know, and I actually, you know, it's funny because you, you could say, oh, you know, you had such a hard childhood and so on and so forth. And I look at it quite the opposite. You know, I, I have children, you know, from various ages, and they were all born here, and they're all entitled like hell. And I love my children, but but they've had a very 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 comfortable life. And I really wonder a lot of times whether that's more of a curse than a blessing. I mean, of course, you know, life always teaches you to survive. And now my children are having to survive in the real world and, you know, jobs and stresses and all that kind of stuff. But I really wonder, like, you know, resilience, I think, is probably the greatest, like, not that I really want people to suffer, but I think suffering in in many ways when you're younger 
is an incredibly valuable gift for survive. If you can survive it going forward, it's an incredibly valuable gift for adaptation in, you know, yeah. kind of environment. Sometimes I wonder if we're just, you know, like I sound like, like an old grandfather at this point, but like, uh, the kids are too soft, but I do think they're really too soft. I mean, they just, what? I think there's something to be said about that because, uh, you know, like my, my father ended up being quite successful in business, but, uh, when I was a kid, he was nearly bankrupt. We had quite a bad recession here in the state of Victoria yeah. in 1991, uh, basically a housing crash. And uh, there's there's a distinct difference between the way that me and my brother think. My brother's about four years apart from me. Mm-hmm. And my sister, who's only six years apart from me, but in a Greek family, the daughter always gets spoiled. But there is, there is a... I remember distinctly growing up around the corner from a methadone clinic. Rashid right. remembers growing growing up around the corner from from an Apple store. Do you know right. what I mean? So it's yeah, it's sure. it's a very it's a very different uh, yeah. I, uh, you I, know, I, level of expectation. I York, when I came to New York, it was 1974. We lived in the Bronx in Riverdale section of the Bronx, which like Fort Apache, the Bronx. And have you ever seen the movie or Taking Pelham One Two Three or Oh, yeah. You know, like I just every like horror 1970s movie that you you can possibly imagine, that was like New York for me, you know. And so my kids grew up on the Upper West Side in the 90s when, you know, it was just Yuppieville City. So, you know, again, yeah, you know, I think it really those early um, experiences, as hard as they are, like they really give you some good uh, formative um, – form- they basically just give you the ability to, to come back to just uh, – get knocked down and come back, which, you know, especially in a business we're in is an absolutely critical skill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I found it interesting for the business that we're in, like looking at your career, but particularly um, your studies. So you studied at Columbia University, which is well known. Like I'm quite an avid value investor, you know, like coming from that that school of Buffett. Um, uh, I mean, like security analysis was... Yes. Written for for a lot of our audience by one of the well the father um, of value investing who was a lecturer at Columbia Uni or a professor yeah. at Columbia Uni. Yes. So I, I I feel like that must have had some impact into your mindset around the markets. Do you think that's the case? Absolutely zero. To this day, it has absolutely zero impact. I am the quint. My wife, who you know is an actual hedge fund manager is, you know, truly a value investor. I am the guy who always pays up, I think. You know, I, 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 it, it's funny. I don't have any of my cultural, you know, the, the knock on, on my people is that we never pay retail. I am, uh, I am what's known as, as a completely acculturated Jew that I really couldn't care less about paying retail. Um, and, and uh, you know, my wife will literally will shop for my daughter's shoes in, you know, like summer shoes in the winter and she'll make, you know, she'll buy bids after Christmas um, stuff. And I just don't have any of that mentality in my head. And, you know, first of all, I'm really not, I'm not an investor, I'm a trader. So that uh, completely, you know, negates the whole idea of investing. But even when I was studying economics at Columbia, the whole notion of buying something for the sum greater than its parts um, never appealed to me. Um, it's just not, just sort of not my personality. But you know, I, I appreciate the, the intellectual rigor of that, and um, and I you know I certainly see the value of it. But fortunately, you know, right now, of course, every value investor is just made a, being made a complete fool of, and not just for yeah. this year, not just for the last, just really for the last decade. It's just it's it's been it's it's now we're just truly in the extraordinarily stupid stage of of. One. Um, um, and I think it's very hard, you know, it's, it's very, very hard because I've lived, I've, I've been in the markets long enough to really seen this, this, this drama play out more than once. Right. So I know exactly mm. how the story is going to go. The problem, the, always the problem with the story is that you know exactly how it's going to go. You just don't know when it's going to go. When? And yeah. that is the hardest part, you know, because you can literally, and that's why, you know, I just, uh, I don't fight it. I don't fight it, but I am fully like, you know, in terms of bringing back my immigrant um, knowledge, there is zero surprise in my head if we have a 2,000-point down day tomorrow. Zero. In fact, I, I, would, be, I would be shocked that we, that we don't. Um, you know, I lived through 87, which was a 25% down day in a day. 
Um, I've lived through the 2000s, which was you know just a battering. I've lived. I I was short real estate in 2005, screaming and yelling at people, and um, you know them telling me how much of an idiot I was. Um, and that's the problem. You know you you are short too early. So I've learned kind of in the old age to just stand back, watch, and then when the massacre happens, you know, pounce on it because um, yeah. it's, you know it's just going to happen. Um, Tesla is sort of the the poster child at this point of the insanity that surrounds us. I did that yesterday that if you put a Tesla on a Virgin Galactic, does that double your return um, in the <laughs> market? Um, you know, because that's, that's how stupid we've gotten, um, you know, as far as... Uh, I saw that. I, I, that's why I was asking because I saw one of your tweets that said, um, efficient markets my ass. And I was just in yeah. agreement that... That yeah, we're in sort of silly territory now. Where uh, look, I I wouldn't say my I wouldn't say I'm a penny pinching value investor. I'm willing to pay for good quality stock. I mean, I remember I bought uh, Apple in 2016 or uh, around that period of time where it was still I think quite undervalued, and that's done incredibly well. But it's gotten to a point now where you just wonder like when are we going to have it will it be something like the coronavirus that eventually pushes the market where it should have gone two three years ago um uh, you who, know, who knows who knows i mean honestly i think the plausible destruction scenario is some kind of a hyper inflation and i don't mean hyperinflation in terms of germany inflation i mean just sort of like a like a 1970s inflationary pinch. And mm. it's very hard to, you know, the problem is that we're in a massively deflationary cycle, right? Everything gets cheap. We're so productive. We're so efficient. We have such amazing control over our technology that it's very, very hard to really kill supply in such a measure that um, that it creates massive shortages, right? Because we can distribute everything super fast. Uh, if once part of the globe goes down, another part you know comes up. But yeah, the coronavirus is, I think, going to be the first real test of whether this whole supply construct, and, and not just supply construct in terms of products, but also obviously I think in terms of agriculture, is going to be flexible enough to mm. adapt, adjust, and keep costs low. Because I do think everything comes down to the fact that rates are negative. That's why we have gold rallying in conjunction with equities and bonds are down. Like, you know, there's just, there's z- less than zero inflationary impulse anywhere in the world. And the, and the central banks just keep printing and printing and printing. When you have zero inflationary impulse, you can print as much money as you want. And that's mm-hmm. in the, because the inflation that all goes into asset classes instead of actual real things. And mm-hmm. so this whole dynamic, it just, that's why it gets sillier and sillier and sillier because it is, it's like blowing up, you know, blowing up, blowing up, blowing up um, a balloon until eventually, you know, it's, it is going to hit some kind of a limit um, and yeah. burst. Yeah, I want to come back to that um, in a moment because I want to talk about the uh, coronavirus because I think you hit on a point about world supply chains and I think that will pro- that will probably be the thing that tests, um, that tests the market because we're seeing it. I mean, I've just been keeping a lot of attention on what's going on. I mean, uh, I think you posted about it on Twitter the other day with uh, – Apple notifying people about their guidance with uh, supply chains, but I'm reading more on the ground stuff about small businesses that basically don't have any product. Like, uh, you know, knowing a few drop shipping e-commerce businesses here in Australia that might do a couple million a year in terms right. of revenue, they're they're like they're they're in dire straits. Um, so they can't get anything. So here's the thing. And this is, this is where I think this whole thing really could come to a head. It's not the supply chain destruction that is the true problem here. It's the domino effect of the income destruction, right? Yeah. If, you, if you think about it, the factory in China can't pay its workers. Its workers don't have any income to buy food, right? The US or Australian uh, reseller has no product. Therefore, he, has, he can't sell anything. And- mm. He doesn't he can't sell anything? His income is down. Therefore, he isn't going to be buying at his local store. His local, you know, like the whole domino chain of income destruction um, across because we're all far more interconnected than you know than we think we are. That's where I think you know the, the real danger point lies. 
in this whole. And that's what I'm kind of watching very carefully. We already have, you know, this the story of, of, of this great, greatest economy ever is that basically we have asset inflation for the people who don't need it and yeah. income deflation for everybody who does. If you look at wages in the U.S., for example, over the last 10 years, the average hourly wage went up by 27%, you know, less than 3% uh, a year. Whereas the uh, assets, the, your, your investment in, in the equity market, the S&P went up more than 300%. And now who owns the S&P? It's basically the top 10% of the people who don't need any money have, have, mm. tripled, have tripled their net worth. The people who actually need money, and more importantly, it's not people who need money, it's people who spend money. In capitalism, always the poorest person is the much more valuable marginal spend because you know a million people with a thousand dollars more in their pocket every month is a million more cars um mm. 10, 10 billionaires with you know a hundred ten billion dollars more in their pocket is just is is what is nothing it's um what are they going to buy with it um nothing they just set up a trust right it's just that they're going to put their money into 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 the equity market and just just flip it over again uh, or you know one of them will buy a yacht um so you know one yacht does not equal one million cars in terms in terms of economic uh, multiplier. So you know, that, and that's kind of been you know this the story. And I think the biggest problem is what if that whole eighty percent now sees um, not just a stagnant wages, but perhaps um, income destruction as a result mm-hmm. of this. People get fired. People get fired. Factories don't work. You know, guys guys who run web businesses, their assistants and their their uh, accounts and everybody else. Um, it has to be fired because because there's no business. All of that starts to really reverberate, I think, downward. Um, that's yeah. a risk market completely and totally not anticipating. Um, and that, that would be a thing that would break Australia. If you look at Australia at the moment, a lot of the general populace, I think we're at the highest amount of personal credit per person uh, ever in the history right. of Australia per capita. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people make comparisons between Australia and the US and how Australians have come out better. Like uh, you mentioned before about how the top 10% has owned more in Australia because of the we have more egalitarian policy. You know, we have Medicare, we're literally the you have to have it. And if you earn over a certain amount, you have to pay like a levy if you sure. don't get pri- private health insurance. Yes. We have uh, now probably the. I think it's only second to Norway's sovereign wealth fund, but the biggest, um, I guess, pension system in the world, which is privately operated by fund managers and is paid for by corporations. So in that sense, uh, what we have in superannuation has made uh, everyone wealthy because of the asset inflation. You know, it goes back into real estate, into stocks that all these funds own. But uh, you go back to the income point, you know, let's let's think about these e-commerce companies that I know. The moment that that income goes, how do they pay off their credit card? How do they pay their mortgage? How do they pay for no, food? Exactly. Like it just exactly. it evaporates immediately, and that's yeah. that's the issue. Yes, because in the real economy, it's always about the money, not about the assets. You know, very few people are asset rich. Most people are contingent upon their income, and income is a very uh, you know, this is part of my immigrant background. Nobody is more aware of the fact that how how tenuous income can be. You know, which is why, like, like an immigrant, I never carry any any credit card debt or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think that is a very very serious um, uh, you know serious factor. Um, you know, Australia hasn't had a recession in twenty eight years. Yeah, it's an incredible beneficiary of what I would say very intelligent public policy and the beneficiary immigration. of being immigration and next to China, all those things that have really created this, this very virtual cycle. But the same things that created the virtual cycle could not create a very vicious cycle for you guys because if China, you know, demand collapses and you have this very, very high debt service rate and a contraction in income, you're going to have a much higher degree of bankruptcy than anybody imagined. Yeah. I mean, I, this is what this is, central banks, I think, are petrified of this. That's why they, they're constantly keeping rates low, right? The other thing is, in, in this environment, people imagine like, you know, hyperinflation, 10% inflation, 20% inflation, right? No. What will kill the global economy is 3% inflation. I mean, mm. the, the delta, because the delta from, you know, 1.5% to 3% is 
the same as from 15% to 30. You know, like people just don't understand how much more expensive their debt service will become at just a hundred basis point rise off these incredibly low levels. Yeah. It's interesting you talk about that. Like in in Australia, I think those are the, you know, Australia, Canada, Brazil, uh, countries that are heavily reliant on exports to this day uh, that really finances the rest of their economy. I think we'll will feel it the the fir- they'll feel it first and they'll feel it the worst. Uh, I think we saw that in the the Great Recession really made a, Australian not the Great Recession the Great Depression rather in the 30s really made Australian culture. There's a lot of things that came from that. I think a lot of that egalitarian egalitarian elements of our policy now uh, was created in the 1930s because of how hard life was. You know, like my my grandmother grew up in that era. She would always, always reuse her her tea bag three times. Yeah, sure. they were all um, very frugal. Yes, yeah. yeah like fr- frugality was, you know, like you go hunting for rabbits. Uh, yeah. That was the meat that you had on yeah. the third day. When every other day, you know, you'd be having just pretty much dairy and vegetables. Right. Um. So I I, I totally agree with you, and I think um. I feel like Australia is a good barometer for the world economy because it's at the moment, I think, one of the most fragile G20 economies out there because of its relationship with yeah. China. It's interesting. You look at, you look at, there, there's just so many disconnects in the market, right? I mean, it's, I, either they mean something or they mean nothing, as always. I, I, I'm, I'm jaded enough to have been in the markets long enough to know that there's no signal that ever predicts anything. But there are some interesting trends that you could just sort of look at. And one trend that clearly is obvious now is if you look at FX, risk FX, like, you know, you, you look at the calm dollars, um, equities are running, right, really running hard. But the calm dollars are, you know, Aussie is pretty much scraping the bottom for 10-year lows. They just, we're not mm-hmm. even bouncing. We're not even bouncing today, um, you know, hard. So they're just kind of signaling to you that, that there are a lot of, there are, basically, there's just a lot of markets that don't believe the rally. It seems like the, you know, the rally is very, very centered in um, hopium inequities, um, and everybody else, bonds are staying, staying stable. Risk FX is pretty much staying stable, except for dollar yen today kind of broke out. And again, that's much more, I think, a story of yields than anything else. Um, and um, uh, and gold, which is supposedly a contrary indicator, is actually rallying in conjunction. Again, real rates are negative, and that, I think, is driving everything um, at this point. So, um, so, you know, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, th- I think you're right that Australia may be the canary in the coal mine for the OECD. I mean, if, if Australia registers the first recession in 28 years, that certainly should be a, just a ringing, ringing warning bell to everybody else that um, the rest of the world is, you know, might be in much, in much greater trouble than, uh, than they think. Um, now, sp- speaking of warning bells, um, I, I obviously, I looked through your career, 20 plus years, many different places that you've, that you've worked at and for. Uh, but I, I'm more intrigued around the places that you founded, which is BK Forex and Asset Management, which was founded in the Great Recession. So <laughs> speaking yeah. from experience then, what were those first few, few years like? You know, it's interesting. So we didn't really feel it. I mean, I, I, it's... Um, it is really weird. I certainly felt when I was in the markets in '87, I felt you know that collapse very hard. I certainly, certainly, I was in New York in you know '01, so that probably was the, from an economic point of view, the hardest time to survive because New York City really went into a, into a very, very serious recession after 9/11. Mm. But ironically enough, because we were completely unexposed to real estate, completely unexposed to real estate. And because our job was basically day trading FX, and it happened to have been that FX at that time had the greatest volatility ever. And you just, you know, you closed your eyes and it was a hundred pip hour, not a hundred pip week. <laughs> it was actually quite fun. You know, like, like I, it was not, um, I, you know, I, I remember Bear Stearns, I remember we were like in a, in a, in a, in a huge seminar actually. And, you know, we were doing like presentation and then Bear Stearns that weekend went bankrupt and everybody's like, oh, and you know, we were like, wow, really? And then 
it was fine for us because it was just more volatility in, in FX. So it's kind of, it's, it's, it's very weird that uh, that particular event really didn't have um, a hard time. It, frankly, it's been much greater challenge to survive um, the last couple of years when the volatility in FX has been at all-time lows. Um, mm. Thank you, central banks. Than it was in back in you know eight nine ten when when vol was great and you could just since you know you know the, the, the old argument is there's no there's no bear markets in FX you know you can always find you can find you can always find a location there um, it's only when everything dies um, that it was hard so actually huge props to my partner Kathy who pretty much I no longer pretty much I no longer really trade FX except algorithmically um, mm. she trades FX on a prop basis all the time and she's done really well by really curtailing her expectation by sort of taking tiny, tiny little bits out of the market every single day. Um, and that's really served her well. Um, you know, I've, I'm happy to, to ride the idiotic uh, equity uh, rallies um, until they end. Uh, but, in, you know, I have obviously very, um, very defensive type of strategies that just kind of pluck in, pluck out, pluck in, pluck out. And they're non-directional. I don't have, you know, I have a view, personal view, and I've learned to never let that view dominate my trading. So, you know, while I may think the markets are idiotic, I'm happy to buy them every single day because I know they're going to be going up. Well, speaking of, speaking of Kathy, how did you two actually meet? Oh, we met at FXCM. Um, we, ah. both, we both started FXCM very early. It was, it was, you know, just completely fortuitous. I had stumbled into FXCM because prior to that, I was, I was actually working um, at my own business as, as a headhunter for a lot of the high technology companies. I was, I was really... Uh, in the first internet bubble, I was very heavily involved in the first internet bubble. And then, of course, the internet bubble just burst. And so kind of my business really blew up. I was day trading, you know, as a side gig at the time for a while. And then I had no idea what FX was. Really, I was day trading strictly like uh, stocks and um, stock index futures at that point. Um, and they had like put out this ad of saying, hey, you know, we're, we need somebody to teach traders how to trade. And it was an overnight job. And I was like, oh. Maybe I, you know, I can do this, and then I can, um, I can trade during the day. That was like that was literally the only reason I, I, I got interested in, it. and <laughs> I stumbled. I literally stumbled. But the thing about it that was very good is, of course, FX is is the ultimate macro market at that time. The FX was just becoming a retail market, so I had a very strong macro background. I took to it like a fish to water. I, I instantaneously understood, you know, what would move the market and stuff like that. And then Kathy, she she'd come uh, to FXCM from J.P. Morgan. Uh, she was a market maker before that, and she was like the only person who was writing research. And what happened was, while I was really, I'm a horrible teacher. Like I have zero patience, as you can tell. You know, I, I don't have, a, I have a New York personality, so I do not suffer badly. <laughs> so I was really getting bored explaining people, you know, various concepts. And I noticed that the whole sales force in the morning had like no clue of how to talk to customers. They couldn't explain why did the euro move, what happened there. So I started writing, and since I was working overnight, I started writing this this, this morning note, right? I would write an over, a note overnight, and I would give it to the sales force so they wouldn't sound like idiots on the phone. And what happened <laughs> was, Kathy started to publishing this note, right? And I would, you know, and I had no idea that, you know, uh, that anybody else but the people in the sales force were, were reading it. And I wrote, and I generally have a very snarky tone, so I wrote this very, very snarky note. And the thing is, it was early. You know, it was early aughts. Not many people were writing about FX. Daily FX was like the uh, one of the few sort of you know mass media website. I, I use that in quotes. At that time, it, now it's of course a mass media website. At that point, it was a single web page. But Market Watch, you know, it was the web. Just it was the early days of the web. Market Watch started picking up our research, and I remember it was hilarious because I had no idea that you know that I was that I was getting quoted in in uh, media, but. The very, very first quote that they quoted me on was, I don't know what's more ridiculous, Alan Greenspan saying that the market is uh, fairly valued or the fact the market actually believed him. You know, and of course, you know, Alan Greenspan at that time was like God, right? And he I wrote, was, yeah. and, and, and this, this like goes into market watch across every newswire. And, and I had no idea. Like, like three weeks later, I'm like, I started Googling. I'm like, holy shit. I, you know, they published this? Um, and so what happened was they liked our style. They, you know, media started to pick us up. We started to really work on daily effects. And Kay and I sort of just have a very, very good work. We're, we're perfectly suited for each other because we are the exact opposites in every, every manner you can possibly imagine. Literally, literally to the point of I certainly don't believe in the, in the um, what do you call it, zodiac signs, but we are yeah. 
literally, literally on the opposite end of a zodiac sign to the day, you know, but our personalities are just completely opposite. And that makes us a very powerful team because we're both good at, you know, certain things and very, very bad at other things. So we just started collaborating, yeah. you know, started collaborating and that, and that created a, a partnership that's been last, that lasted more than, you know, my, both of my, more than certainly one of my marriages and uh, so far <laughs> still together. I think there's something to be said about that. My co-founder um, running this agency that we operate is the exact opposite um, in personality traits, and I think people often forget that how important how important personality traits are to matching with your own. You know, like I could never be friends with someone like myself. <laughs> like, no, I, I would, well, I would just hate me. <laughs> no, but, but you know, the other thing that's very, very funny is that Kay and I have been like together forever, forever. Um, and people always, for, for, for the longest time, people used to think we were married. And, you know, that was like the, the big running joke. <laughs> the other thing that's, that's, that's kind of funny is that even though we've been together forever, we're really not social friends. People like think, you know, like, you know, we hang out. We don't. We have this incredibly great working relationship. But my wife knows more about what's going on in Kathy's personal life than I do half the time, you know, which is kind <laughs> of really, really interesting. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think, and that, those are all things that people go, oh, really? And I'm like, yeah, because if you're really great business partners, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you know, that you have the same social interests or, or skills. I mean, we're not, we certainly, you know, we, we very much share the same kind of the same politics, sort of same cultural interests, but we, you know, we just, we, we're not like buddy buddies outside of the yeah. office, but we, we've spent hours and miles and months on the road together. So it's not, you know, it's like we don't know each other. It's just, it's kind of interesting that we work a very, we have a very working relationship um, all the time. I, I actually just read a book uh, by, it was about Kahneman and Tversky. Uh, it's by, yeah. by the gentleman who wrote uh, the big short called The Undoing yes. Project. Yes. That's yes. it. Always forget his name. Uh, brilliant book. And I think if anyone has a co-founder or is searching for a co-founder, you should read that book because that just shows that, you don't have to be best mates with the person that you run a business with. You just have to get along really well. No, you do. And actually, I actually think that in many ways it's, it's, it's terribly destructive to have an emotional relationship with a person because, yeah. and, you know, you can't have – like Kay and I can scream and yell at each other and five minutes later be perfectly okay because we don't have – you know, we don't have like this kind of emotional, oh, you know, you hurt me. You know, but first of all, you know, neither one of us are like – we are – the least sentimental people, both of us. So like none of us, you know, I, and, and I am, of course, you can tell I'm much more of the volatile person uh, than she is. But yeah, I think, the, you know, those things are actually staying in the way, you know, I will just come in and I'll scream and I'll shout and I'll, you know, and I'll vent and I'll, you know, and she'll just, you know, uh, sit there quietly and she'll tell me, you're a fucking idiot. This is what you need to do. And then why don't you think, why don't you think for a second about what you're doing? And then, you know, once she does that, I said, oh yeah, you're actually right. You know, and it's also very ironic because, I'm much older than her, but she's, we always argue, you know, so it's always funny because she's, she's definitely much more mature than me emotionally. <laughs> I like that. I like that one. I think the, the definite edge that you guys have is the fact that you take a macro view, but you also look at things technically at times. So oh, you, you, you don't look at, I mean, uh, it's written on your website. You don't look at one or the other. You know, we've, we've interviewed many different types of people and they're always ideologically driven too fundamental or technical analysis or this type of way of thinking. And I think uh, the best, uh, I guess, traders or investors that we've interviewed are the ones who have, I guess, uh, a bit of worldly wisdom. They combine a lot of things to have um, some awareness as to what they're actually doing. And I think I think that's why you were saying before about the media, I think maybe that's why the pe- people in media liked you because it, it allows it, – it, I guess it makes it more palatable for your everyday audience as well because you're able to actually explain what is actually happening. I guess I was curious being in media and, uh, you know, it's, it's Bloomberg, it's CNBC, Squawk Box. Uh, I know you've, you've, you've been wildly quoted by Reuters and Dow Jones as well. What have you learned as a commentator? Has that, has that impacted you as a trader? It's always about the story. You know, I mean, if you understand the story, you understand the trade. The very, very hard part of that little, you know, trade little statement that I just made is that understanding the story, because what you think the story is may very well not be. And that is where I think 
the technicals really come in. You see, mm. if you're a pure fundamentalist, you have a ideological religious view of what the story is, right? And like, you know, right now, you, you, know, you, you can make the argument, listen, everything is grossly overvalued, which it is. Sentiment is, is, is off the charts and we should be short. But no, the technicals are actually telling you you should be long because the story, um, the true story is none of that matters. The only thing that matters is interest rates can continue, real interest rates can keep going down, down, down. That actually makes valuation immaterial or, or let's say PE of 30 in, in, in a real rate of negative five is perfectly is the same as PE of 10 in a real rate of, of positive two. And mm. that's where I think the technicals really give you the flexibility to understand the underlying story, which is what Kathy does so well. I mean, Kathy is actually the mistress, we call her the queen of macro, of synthesizing the technicals with the fundamentals. And one thing, and she always, you know, she's, we always have this, this running uh, joke that whenever she goes against price, whenever she sort of lets her personal bias overwhelm, you know, the, uh, the price action, what the price action is telling her, She's almost inevitably wrong. The, the trade is almost always going to go wrong because the market doesn't care what you think. The market only cares about what you understand. Um, and what you understand really requires you to be very flexible. You know, mm. That's why we, we combine both. Yeah. I think just going back to my original point, I think the, the people, I think it's that awareness as well. Like knowing her, knowing that when those moments have happen and being aware of it, there's so many people who would just, you know, that cognitive dissonance hits them, and immediately they're finding a reason as to why that trade has failed. Um, I think that's yeah. what really distinguishes the good versus great yeah. traders you know, and investors. Do you know what's really helped us over the last year? It's really, I think, definitely made her tremendously. I mean, she's sort of like I think I've already lost count. But I think she's like 26 out of 30, maybe maybe even now 27 out of 31. That is positive week. So she's she does a, her target is to do 100 pips a week, and like she's done she's done like literally. I I I have to pull up the record, but it's somewhere around there. It's like 30. It's literally some ridiculous 80 to 85 percent of the weeks um, that she has traded over the last six and a half months um, have been positive to her goal, right? So you know what's 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 the difference? And, and my my trades have really gotten much better. And so, you know my my equity trades have gotten so much better. And what's the difference? Is actually kind of interesting. We've created a whole bunch of visual technical indicators. So we, nothing nothing there's nothing esoteric about it. In other words, we've taken the standard technical indicators that everybody uses to gauge trend or momentum, a little bit of, you know, maybe special sauce, just a couple of tweaks or, or, or tweaks that, that, have, that make it interesting. But by creating these visual maps that, you know, incontrovertibly show you through visual cues what the market is doing, is the market green or is the market red? Is the market rallying above today's, today's open or is the market falling above today's open you know is the market uh is there a retrace or there is no retrace these are concepts that we all understand intellectually but when you see them visually your ability to absorb and actually accept and act on that data is tenfold and i think that's been a huge improvement in our own trading is to visualize all of these mathematical concepts because i don't know if you how you are with math there are some people who are just naturally great at math I am one of those people that probably the hardest course I've ever taken in my life was was calculus. I, I you know I managed to, to 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 take calculus place out of math and never do math again for the rest of my life. And it's not you know it's, and it's not that I'm an illogical person. It's not that I that I that I do badly in math. It's just that I'm one of those people that if you give me an algebraic a quadratic equation um, and you put A B C's and D's in front of it, my mind goes blank. If you actually put in if you put in actual numerical values into the equation, I totally understand it. You know, mm. I'm one of those people that needs to be very, very literal. And I think there's a lot of people like that. I think there's a lot of people who who need the the tact you know the tactile feeling of of math realized in real life, you know, not not in not in equations, not in esoteric equations. And so when we started doing these kind of visual tools, that's really, you know, it's 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 um, humanizing mathematics. Um, and that made it much easier for us to then st start start making trades. 
You know, moving average crossover on a chart is nowhere near as potent as having a chart turn green or red um, instantaneously to give you, uh, you know, in instant understanding of what's going on with price. Yeah, I think going yeah going back to that point, I think uh, what actually what makes your edge is that you guys don't allow cognitive dissonance to affect you. I think that's really really critical to me. At least watching your interviews and the way you guys talk, that's what I've gotten. Um, as a sense, but we um, built a lot of tools to help us. It's not, you know, it's not exactly. Like, it's, not, it's not that we have any kind of extra human <laughs> on our point. We we just simply realize our uh, deficiencies and have tried to create stuff that helps us um, overcome that. You know, yeah, yeah, and that that's that's incredibly critical. I, I speak to this audience a lot about things like journaling and the other little practices. But if you can build those processes into what you do for work, whether it's trading, investing, operating a business, that is incredibly important um, and crucial to succeeding, I think. Um, I, I'm wary of time, so I've got to jump into some rapid-fire questions to finish you off. Hit me. Uh, so, first one, what's your morning routine look like? All right, so I have had a crazy routine for uh, 15 or 20 years already at this point, so I don't, I don't really recommend this to anybody who has a real life, but the way we cover the market is I cover, we cover the market like 20 hours a day. So my uh, beat has always been sort of late Asia, early Europe, all the way through to European close. So I'm up at three o'clock in the morning, New York time, and you know I'm sort of done at 12 noon. Um, and then Kathy comes in around six, seven in the morning, New York time, and she runs it through through to about you know the New York close, which is 1,700 hours. And then you know I come back on and I do early Asia. And you know the the reality of the situation is you never go to sleep. You know I you know I, I've never I haven't gotten an eight hour you know sleep. Um, during Monday through Friday uh, on a non-vacation day in the last 20 years. Um, mm. You know, but what I, you know, I, uh, again, this is one of those things that I, where I adapt. I don't have a regular day. So I will wake up at three. I will trade. We'll do research. You know, we'll, we'll do, we'll, we'll do, sometimes we'll do a live trading uh, for the New York session. Um, I'll certainly watch the markets really, really intensely, especially now that I watch equities. Um, till about 11, 11.30 New York time. And then I'll take a nap, you know, then I'll, I'll just, I'll peace out. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, I'll, I'll blank out from sometimes one o'clock in the afternoon in New York till about four or five New York. And then I'm back online. And then, you know, then I'm back in, you know, in, in, um, in, into the market. So um, that's kind of like my routine. It's not a, it, it is not a, uh, a normal routine. Every, every deli person in, in, in my neighborhood knows me very well. <laughs> well, that that brings me to my next question. What's uh, what's in the fridge at home? Uh, virtually nothing. What's you know what's in the fridge at home? Uh, the one thing I live is there's there's this mineral water called Vichy Catalan, which uh -huh. is uh, actually out of uh, Spain. It's from this two thousand year old um, spring, Roman spring. Uh, mm. It's ridiculously expensive and it tastes disgusting for for most of the people who don't drink it. But I drink like two. Uh, I drink four liters of it every day. So, uh, yes. So that's, that's primarily what's in the fridge. And uh, other than that, I'm a typical New York guy. There is a rotisserie. I eat, the other thing is I'm the type of person that may have to make – first of all, when you're trading, you have to make a million decisions a day. So I literally tr try to make zero personal decisions. I wear the exact same clothes. I eat the exact same food. I do the exact same thing. And if my wife asks me just to deviate one second off of my routine on a Monday to Friday, I go absolutely apeshit because yeah. it may seem like, oh, can you just you know pick up uh, our daughter uh, from her ballet class, um, you know, because the nanny is is doing something else. That tiny little thing will just drive me nuts because, and it, it sounds ridiculous, but it's not if you are sort of in a process where so much of your you know emotional and intellectual energy is is devoted to to um, uh, to making decisions in the marketplace. You just don't have. I've learned that you just don't have any emotional intellectual bandwidth for anything else. You know. Yeah, I'd agree with that, hundred yeah. uh, percent. Last question for you: If you could have a billboard anywhere in New York, where would it be, and what would it say? Really, nothing. It would be blank, and <laughs> it would be like, um, where would I put it? It would be in Times Square, and it would be blank, just because I would want people to go, "What the f is that all about?" <laughs> I like that one. That's very good. <laughs> Boris, uh, 
Thank you so much for doing this. Where can people find you, BK Asset Management, BK Forex on the interwebs? On the interwebs, bkforex.com is the place to find us. And the place to follow us is on Twitter. And as you know, I'm on Twitter all the time. So yeah. my, my handle is FXflow, F-X-F-L-O-W. Um, and Kathy's handle is Kathy Lean, L-I-E-N-F-X. And you should definitely follow us because, you know, I tweet a lot and, you know, sometimes I tweet something intelligent. One out of 20 tweets, I tweet something intelligent. The rest of the times I'm just ranting and raving at the world. But, you know, they're all, they're all amusing. And, you know, and I, and I do live, you know, I do live on Twitter because that is, I think, you know, the, the social platform of traders. Um, and that's pretty much where you can get me. And, you know, if, if, if you want to message me, you can message us. And uh, that's pretty much it. Well, we'll make sure we link all that. Um, I would thoroughly recommend that people go follow you on Twitter if they want a good laugh. Um, and as you said, occasional, uh, uh, very important information. But I think it, it's it's. I think Twitter is the place when it comes to trading, without a doubt. Um, it is the oh, platform. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, you know, Instagram is 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 for for self-involved morons and Facebook is for your grandma and grandpa and grandpa. Um, and I don't even, I don't even, I don't even know what snap is and TikTok. Oh my God. I have some friends now who starting to make TikToks. It is literally the end of Western civilization. I, is, that to me is just the complete absence of all humanity to what it is. The stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. That's my personal opinion on it. But uh, and, it, and I probably sound every one of my fifty-seven years when I say this. But I'm sorry, you know that's where I draw the line. So if, the, if you want to, if you want to live in an in an intelligent world, you live on Twitter. That's my view. My goal in life now is to get Boris on TikTok. That's um, that's, that's the goal. <laughs> All right, uh, Boris. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure having you on. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S. Until next time, thanks for listening.